You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For September 16th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Wow, our five-year anniversary. It's been a long journey, and this is a big milestone for us. Not many podcasts survive this long. We were not at all sure we would make it this far when we started. But you, our subscribers, have made this dream a reality. You validated our hope that people would actually pay for a high-quality, advertising-free energy podcast amid a sea of free alternatives, and you've made it possible for us to bootstrap a sustainable business without any sponsors or outside investors, giving us the freedom to say whatever we think. For that, we are enormously grateful, and we are aware of the awesome responsibility that comes with that rare privilege. And yet I still feel like we're just getting started with so many topics still to cover. Indeed, the global energy transition feels like it's still just getting started, with decades of transformation yet to come and entire industries yet to overturn and replace. And I can tell you truthfully that there is nowhere I would rather be and nothing I would rather do than being right here making this podcast for you. It's been a huge amount of work, but it's also been a blast. And I can't wait to see what the next five years of this show will bring. It's also exciting to have been doing this long enough that we are starting to see some of the themes and expectations we talked about in the first couple of years of this show maturing into full flower today as the momentum around energy transition continues to build globally and a new, clean, sustainable energy system starts to emerge. And we'll revisit a few of those themes and stories today as we look back on yet another year of incredible progress in energy transition, which has continued to power ahead even as the pandemic continues to rage in many countries. And, as is our tradition, we've invited our old friend Jonathan Kumi to join us for this anniversary show to take a look back at the developments of the past year and to peer into the darkness ahead just a little bit and try to see what's coming next. We'll consider how expectations have changed for coal and gas-fired electricity generation. We'll discuss the changed outlook for natural gas appliances. We'll talk about the growing support for just transition strategies and the growing support for integrating climate and environmental justice objectives to ensure that energy transition leaves no one behind. We'll summarize the latest developments in the ongoing debate over climate scenarios. We'll discuss some of the new models around what an 80 or 90 or 100% renewable energy system might look like. And we'll review a slew of stories about corruption investigations into legacy energy companies, several of which we first covered two and three years ago. It's a fun, mostly unstructured romp through recent history, and I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as we did. 
Then in the news segment, we'll update several of the stories we touched on in this interview, including the latest developments into the corruption probes in Ohio, another federal bribery investigation into a nuclear operator in Illinois, and a major shakeup at a utility in Virginia, and we'll celebrate the decision to replace capacity at a large coal plant in the U.S. with solar and storage. And now, without further ado, let's review the year that was with our old friend Jonathan Kumi from our conversation recorded July 28, 2020. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, John, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here. So to prepare for this episode, I started with a look at our conversation one year ago to see what had changed. And I was a little startled to see how some of those stories feel as current today as they did a year ago. So what do you say we kick this conversation off by revisiting some of them to see if we have at least made any progress? Sounds good. So the first was the early retirement of thermal power plants. Now, a year ago, we were talking about the apparent disconnect between some of the projections of the climate modeling community who are still focusing on the so-called committed future CO2 emissions of existing fossil-fueled power plants, and the energy modeling community who are looking at the falling capacity factors of so many plants, especially coal plants, and noting that those future emissions were not guaranteed at all, because in fact, the plants were getting run so infrequently that they were actually more at risk of closure than of being a future climate threat, particularly in the developing world, which many have expected to continue increasing its reliance on coal for decades to come. And on that score, I think we might have actually made some progress. I think the message has started to get through that, in fact, the developing world is probably close to building its last new coal-fired power plant already, and that many of the new coal plants in China could effectively be considered stranded assets the day they were completed because they were not built to meet actual demand for electricity, but rather just to capture state incentives. I mean, even here in the U.S., coal consumption fell by 15% in 2019, which is one of the largest annual declines of any energy source ever. So I think it was less certain a year ago with the Trump administration doing all it could to put a thumb on the scale in favor of coal. But what do you think? Has the expectation of future coal consumption dampened over the past year? Well, I think the realization that coal is uneconomic, it is uneconomic from society's perspective to generate electricity from coal. And increasingly, it's uneconomic from a direct cost perspective. People like to talk about how coal is cheap, but actually coal is no longer the cheapest new source of electricity generation with renewables and batteries eating into, as you said, the capacity factors of those plants. And so even from a direct cost perspective, the value proposition really isn't there. But from society's perspective, coal has been uneconomic for a very long time. Yeah, and I think it's taken a while for the awareness to sink in, uh, especially you know amongst casual observers, that because a coal plant is getting built doesn't mean it's actually going to run all the time. It doesn't mean that it's economic either. Right. It's being built for other reasons, as you alluded to in your earlier comments. There are other drivers, and those drivers include corruption. They include the incentives associated with governments trying to keep their coal sector going. But ultimately, it's very hard to fight against the core economics when something is just uneconomic. At a certain point, people just get tired of propping it up. And I think we're reaching that stage with coal. Do you also see 
just sort of the general dialogue about the future of coal having changed a bit in the past year? Do you see this evolution that I'm trying to highlight here between an expectation for committed future emissions and perhaps a skepticism about how much coal-fired generation is actually going to happen in the developing world in particular? Well, I think you see it in the financial reporting. When people start looking at uh, coal generation as investors, they're starting to realize that the end is near. Yeah. And you're starting to see, you know, coal export terminals not going through and new coal mines not being built because it's throwing good money after bad. And it really is no longer an economic proposition. So I think anyone who cares about not losing money would be wise to not put money into building new coal infrastructure. Yeah. I remember when we were talking about this last year, we were talking a lot about the public pronouncements of Adani in India, and he had been making a lot of headlines about his expectations for this big, bright future for coal. And I remember you and I were a bit skeptical of that, to put it mildly. Rightly so, it turns out. Yeah, I haven't heard a lot from him in the past year. <laughs> yeah, but of course, you know, someone who owns a coal mine or wants to build a coal mine is very happy to make rosy forecasts about these things. But ultimately, you can't fight against the economics. One of the things that you mentioned also is this concept of committed emissions. And this is the idea that once a piece of infrastructure is built, it's very hard to shut it down. People want to use it because they can spread the fixed cost of that investment over more production, driving down the cost per kilowatt hour. So that's the difficulty that new energy sources have in competing with pre-existing infrastructure, because the pre-existing infrastructure has only the marginal costs, right? The variable costs of the fuel and the operation. But nowadays we're increasingly seeing that solar and wind and batteries are coming in at a cost less than the marginal cost of existing coal generation. And that's really a game changer. That's really something that is the cause of this decreasing capacity factors that you mentioned. And that's the thing that I think ultimately makes coal a dying industry because you just can't justify it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, also last year we were looking at how some fairly modern and efficient natural gas-fired power plants had started also getting pushed off the grid by cheaper wind and solar. I haven't seen a lot of those stories in the past year, but I have seen a number of high-profile utility rate cases here in the U.S. in which utilities had proposed building some big new gas-fired plants, and the regulators actually rejected those plans and told them to go back and look at alternatives. And then the utilities came back with proposals for largely wind and solar with a total portfolio cost that was lower than their original gas plant proposals were. So maybe Maybe I'd put it like this. Last year, we saw wind and solar push existing gas plants off the grid. This year, we're seeing them push planned gas plants off the drawing board. And in fact, there have been several recent studies suggesting that we shouldn't build any new gas plants at all, that many of the existing gas plants are already on the verge of being uneconomic and getting retired, with solar and wind expected to keep pushing them out of grid power markets. So what do you think? Is there more of a consensus now that we may be reaching peak gas as well? Yeah, I think so. And we'll talk more later in the hour about the studies around reaching high percentage of renewables in electric grids. But 
Remember that thing in Southern California? They actually were able to cancel some peaking plants just using batteries. Yeah. And so it's not just you've got your combustion turbines competing against batteries. And California also just changed its proxy plant. In the past, the last 40 years of utility economics, they always use a combustion turbine as the proxy plant for calculating the cost of reliability. Hmm. But California just changed their procedures. So now the batteries are the proxy plant, the cost of batteries. That's the marginal resource for reliability. So I think you're going to see much more direct competition between these batteries and combustion turbines. And then wind and solar plus four or eight hours of battery duration competing against combined cycle plants. I think there are a lot of old gas plants that are inefficient and can be shut down. To achieve high levels of renewable penetration, we don't need to build any new gas plants. Wow, I did not know that California had changed its reference like that. That's super interesting. Yeah, this happened in the last couple of weeks. It's a relatively recent thing. I'll look for the link on that and you can post it. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes for sure. That's really interesting. Yeah, and in fact, we've seen in a number of recent studies that look at how to achieve not necessarily a 100% renewable grid, but a mostly or largely renewable grid, that the existing gas plant capacity is more than enough to meet that remaining increment of generation and dispatchability and you know reliability assurance. It's really interesting. Right, because it's right now it's tens of percent. Right. Of the generation is gas. Yeah. And if you can get to 90% renewables plus batteries, the last 10% is natural gas. You don't need all the gas plants that exist to do that. And you may still want to keep some around, as we've talked around in the past, for emergency situations where you have a two-week lull in wind or something like that. But ultimately, that's a question of figuring out a way to give incentives to those gas plants to stick around but not to run, Mm -hmm. except in these exceptional circumstances. And that's just a question of redesigning incentives. It's not physics. You know, physically, it's well known how to do this. It's just a question of making sure that the plants are well maintained and that they do testing and that they're able to kick in when you need them. Especially if we could find a way to compensate them that isn't part of the conventional regime of capacity payments. (laughs) Yeah, so I don't know whether it's capacity payments or some variation of payments for delivery only at certain times. Yeah. But the point is, under the normal market rules, the incentive is if the price is high, they're going to try to run those plants. The marginal cost is high then they're going to try to run the plants. But you don't want them to do that. What you want is to overbuild solar and wind or do imports or have transmission or something else. But you want to overbuild solar and wind so that those are the marginal resources most of the time. And then you keep the gas around for the 5 or 10% or even a few percent of the year that you really need them. Right. Which is, as we'll discuss in a minute, one more reason why 100% renewables isn't necessarily the right design target. At least not now. I mean, we don't need to know how we're going to do it in 15 years. All we need to know is that there's a set of technologies. Costs are coming down rapidly. We know how to run the grid using these new technologies. And if we keep some gas plants around, boy, that job gets a whole lot easier and cheaper. Mm -hmm. 
You know, a related theme, which I think has really gained a lot of traction over the past year, is about all the various efforts to electrify everything, including not just equipping new buildings with gas at all, opting for electric appliances instead, and even ripping out gas appliances and replacing them with electrics and just capping the gas distribution lines. Over the past year, we've seen numerous cities just say, no more gas, which I think is a really interesting development. And it's not something that anyone I know is expecting to happen even as little as two or three years ago. So that's, I think, another interesting evolution in the general thinking over the past year. Yeah, this is something that's happened much more rapidly than I expected. And we've seen dozens of cities now come up with these sort of anti-gas rules. And it turns out to be a pretty important thing. If you're going to expand the electricity grid, with more different kinds of uses, you're going to be able to spread loads over a bigger part of the day. You're going to have more control, particularly with vehicles. You can have some control over when they charge. And that combined perhaps with incentives to get companies to put charging stations at work, whenever people go back to work, put charging stations at work, suddenly you get this huge dispatchable resource during the day. So people can charge their car at work, so that's a perk, but also they're not going to be charging the whole time. And if they happen to not charge for 15 minutes and and shift that around so that you kind of distribute the no charging times, you can actually get demonstrable reductions in load that are provable for which you can be paid. Yeah. Well, with a little more evolution on the utility tariff side of things, you could get paid. That's right. That's right. So that's the (laughs) thing that we need to be clear about is that physically we know how to do this. Right. And the question is, how do you design incentives and institutional structures so that these things will happen the way we want them to happen? And that's a hard problem. There are a lot of issues around that. So I don't want to minimize the complexity of it. But the point is, there's no physical reason why we can't do this. And the more different kinds of loads we have on the utility grid, the more flexibility we're going to have in controlling those loads, helping the system adapt to some of the changes we anticipate over the next few decades. Yeah. Well, there's a reason why for the last three, four years, I've been traipsing all over the country in my position at the Rocky Mountain Institute, talking to regulators about the need for rate design reform so that we can get some utility tariffs out there that will really properly compensate managed charging for electric vehicles in particular, but also provide more of a business case for deploying high-speed public charging stations because there's some problems with the tariffs there and we don't need to go down that rabbit hole today. But there's a lot of work to be done on the regulatory side of this as well as on just kind of what utilities are thinking and what kind of rate cases they're bringing that's an underappreciated aspect, I think, of this evolution. Yeah, I also think this is a great example of the power of whole system design, Mm -hmm. kind of rethinking from scratch. And the reason is that if you can avoid having any gas into your house entirely, then you don't have the fixed charges that you always have to pay for the gas line. You don't have to worry as much about indoor pollution. You still have to have ventilation for your stove, even if it's electric, because, of course, cooking is a source of indoor pollution as well. But in terms of carbon monoxide and some of the particulates 
there's no combustion. Right. So you don't have to worry about it. So you avoid the fixed costs, you avoid the indoor air quality problems, and that makes life easier in a lot of different ways. And if you try to do this incrementally, then you don't get the benefit of simply eliminating natural gas from the house. Mm-hmm. And you avoid certain risks and you avoid certain costs. And that turns out to be a pretty big benefit. It's, it's a little bit harder with existing buildings, of course, because you have to, maybe often, you have to upgrade the panel if it's an older house. So you need to have 200 amp service or more than you might have, and that can be expensive. But I think certainly for new homes, it makes almost no sense to design for gas anymore. And if you combine that with batteries and solar and an islandable system, then suddenly the power outages that are quite common in residential buildings because of the distribution grid failing, because of trees hitting the wires, you can also increase the reliability of your new house by avoiding this whole mess. So I think that's ultimately where things are going. And I think it's a good thing that things are going in that direction. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. But if you can think back to what we were thinking and talking about a year ago, would you agree that there's been far more interest in this concept of just not only not equipping new buildings with gas at all, but ripping out the gas supply of existing building stock? Oh, yes. It's been a sea change, I think, in the last year. And that turns out to be a pretty important thing. I think the gas utilities see it as an existential threat, and they should. Mm. Because I think ultimately you get to the point where there's a death spiral, they call it, where they start losing customers, which means the fixed costs get spread over fewer customers, which means the fixed costs go up per customer, and that causes more customers to leave. And so we're going to have to figure out some sort of a transition there. And that's going to be hard, but I think that's where we're going with this. Well, not only that, we've seen some cases of some shenanigans involved where you've got a a utility that may provide electricity and gas to a certain set of customers, and they're playing some dirty tricks to try to keep people committed to that gas or to use another part of their business to subsidize the gas part. Right. And there's a whole bunch of complexity around rate design. Yeah. And I think in a lot of jurisdictions, you don't have as many people as perhaps would be optimal who are knowledgeable and able to pay attention to those subtleties, because that's where those incentives or corruption, if you will, that's where that manifests in this very technical area of rate design. Yeah. And it makes it difficult for normal folks to figure out what's going on or journalists or anyone else who's not really technically sophisticated about these things. For sure. And I had to learn about rate design sort of by osmosis on the job. There's a steep mountain to climb there. That is not... Yeah, the the word arcane comes to mind. (laughs) It is really appropriate. There's a lot of subtleties there. Well, not only that, but but, I mean, if you're coming at it from the angle that I am of like, you know, I'm just a guy who's like trying to encourage energy transition any way I can. You find yourself immediately just neck deep in all of this history and precedent and 
tradition and conventional views of things, especially when you're dealing with regulators who have been in the regulatory domain for a long time, you're up against, we've always done things this way, just over and over again. And it's almost pointless to even ask why, but you do have to find ways to break them out of those molds and start thinking about things in a fresh way. It's not like they're statutorily bound to do things the way that they are. It's not like utilities have no choice. It's not like there's anything preventing us from doing things a different way except these just accretive layers of just tradition. (laughs) Yeah, because we've always done it that way, (laughs) right? right? And the utility industry is about 100 plus, 120 years, something like that. So there's a lot of that accretive tradition there. Yeah. Another thing occurs to me as we're talking, in the last year or two, California – set out a mandate for new homes to be solar ready, to have solar. That's a good right? point, yeah. And so again, this is a case where if you require it, what happens is that the customer acquisition cost, which turns out to be very expensive, it's like 10 or 20% of the cost of a typical solar install, is finding customers, yeah. and getting the deal closed. And if you mandate solar in new homes, that's 20% just off the top. Yeah. And then you systematize the approval process and get rid of all the local jurisdiction complexity that is simply not contributing at all to any benefit whatsoever. And so that's part of what's going on here is that we're moving to a situation where solar becomes the norm. And so that removes a lot of costs from the system. We know that the U.S. costs can be cut by a factor of two or three because Australia is already there. And so there's so much fat in the soft costs and the customer acquisition costs. And if we move towards this system where you're eliminating gas from the houses, you're requiring solar, you're making it easy, giving incentives to put batteries in so that the houses can be more reliable – it's a whole new ballgame, and it takes a long time to turn over houses, but it's like tree planting. The best time to have planted a tree was 30 years ago, but the second best time is now. So we might as well start doing the right thing now, so in 30 years, things will be better, hopefully faster than that. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. In fact, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately because the last major report that I did for Rocky Mountain Institute was about the soft costs of deploying EV charging infrastructure. And it turns out it's almost all the same stuff that you were just talking about with the soft costs of deploying solar, especially rooftop solar. There's the cost of customer acquisition. There's the cost of getting building permits and planning clearance. It's the problems of utility interconnection. It's all the same stuff that I was dealing with when I was trying to get solar built 15 years ago. And the Department of Energy, actually through the SolSmart part of the SunShot program, actually started finding ways to really identify and target and eliminate some of those soft costs by doing things like standardizing the process of pulling a building permit for a rooftop solar array. But we need to do it all over again now for EV charging infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. And I think it's a general problem. We have a system that for many decisions is very decentralized. Yeah. And what that means is that lots of local jurisdictions have lots of rules that may or may not make any sense. And unless we go through and systematize, as you say, 
there's going to be a lot of churn and a lot of soft costs and a lot of things that we are paying for that we shouldn't have to pay for. So that's a really important lesson for people is that there are benefits to having a distributed or decentralized political system, but there are also costs. And for things like this, having distributed permitting, like really local permitting, means that it's very hard to get rid of those soft costs. And so you need to have the state or even the feds figure out ways to systematize and create model codes and try to push those things through because it's really there's no excuse for this in a modern society i mean a lot of this stuff is just unnecessary and shouldn't exist yeah it just is a waste of money for society it's silly yeah well that's exactly why we're going to need the help of the department of energy here again to tackle this from a federal level you know, I think another thing that we've seen a lot more discussion about the need for over the past year is the need for just transition strategies to help workers associated with the coal industry in particular transition into other industries and careers and other ways to make up the loss of tax revenue for those communities. I think that was a relatively new discussion about a year ago, but now I'd consider it fairly common. And interestingly, this year it's gained additional support through climate justice and environmental justice efforts, movements like Black Lives Matter, and just the economic damage of the pandemic lockdown. I mean, I guess I would say that over the past year, the justification for transitioning communities off of coal has become much broader than tackling the climate challenge, and that people have a better appreciation now for the fact that disadvantaged communities always seem to somehow take the brunt of environmental pollution and damage that the fossil fuel complex does. And they're just now correctly recognizing that in many many ways, environmental justice is racial justice. So do you also see some progress on that, Vector? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. 
And now a quick look at some recent news items, starting with a few additional developments that happened after we recorded this interview to some of the utility stories we discussed. Item 1. We'll start with the first energy story. After his arrest, a federal grand jury indicted former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and four others in what investigators say was a $61 million bribery scheme. Racketeering charges were filed for an alleged conspiracy that funneled money from businesses such as First Energy through dark money groups and political action committees to elect Householder as Speaker of the House so that he could, in turn, bribe other lawmakers and push through a $1 billion bailout bill known as HB6 for two of First Energy's nuclear plants in Ohio. First Energy had tried and failed repeatedly to secure a bailout for its nuclear plant since 2014. In fact, we covered one of those efforts in our conversation with Gavin Bade in episode 41 on generator survival strategies. Householder refused to step down after his arrest, so on July 30th, the Ohio House of Representatives removed Householder from his position as the Ohio House Speaker. As of this writing, Ohio Governor DeWine and several members of the General Assembly have called for repeal of HB6, and the Democratic minority in the House has proposed another bill to repeal it. The FBI investigation continues. Item 2. The same racketeering and bribery scheme also apparently involved Murray Energy Corp., the largest privately owned coal company in the U.S., which filed for bankruptcy in 2019. Its founder and CEO, Robert Murray, is a major supporter of and contributor to Donald Trump and has been the source of many of Trump's policy moves to buttress the failing U.S. coal industry. The federal criminal complaint in the scheme states that one of the Shell nonprofits households... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. <laughs>